0: I love this confluence of events because Billy Corbin has been chronicling Miami being batshit crazy for a long time. And it is such fertile terrain for making content. And so now he's going to the well again here with just, hey, you want to know what the Miami 80s and 90s were like? You want to know the roots of where it is that my cocaine cowboy stories uh, originate? Take us through it, Billy. How did you end up making this project for Netflix that I will imagine, because people love narcos and they just love these drug
1: stories, I imagine people will eat up how Miami weird all of this is. Yeah, I I may not be a one-hit wonder, but I might be a one-trick pony. Let's let's be perfectly honest about this. Um, you know, that, back to the well. Uh, you know, it's um, endlessly
0: fascinating, yeah. though, Billy. Like you could keep doing stories about Miami and drugs, and people will watch every last thing you do on Miami and drug stories. Yeah.
1: So this is our fourth title in the franchise. You know, we did Cocaine Cowboys. We did Cocaine Cowboys Two. Hustlin' with the Godmother. There's no "G" in that's Hustling with an apostrophe. You're a little embar- you're a
0: little embarrassed by that, and I liked. The I didn't love the sellout of it, but I liked the story you were telling. I wish it had been in the first one, the, the story that was in the second one.
1: Listen, I, I was young and I needed the money. Let's be perfectly honest about it. It's the same, same reason, you know, I do porn, but like, uh, you know, I did porn. I was young and I needed the money, you know, but like, uh, no, I'm not, a bit, we, we always have this conversation, you, you know, you and I, I think this is the first place that I sort of like confessed in real time and didn't necessarily mean to like that I was embarrassed how I felt about broke and how I feel like we always have this therapy session about, you know, the projects that just, you know, don't quite turn out the way that you hope uh, that they will. The intentions are good. I don't think you set out to make, nobody sets out. That's not true. Some people set out to make a bad movie, but they never set out to make a movie. That's not for a particular audience, I think. And so, you know, we're lucky enough where there is a built in audience, whether it's the drug content or the ESPN 30 for 30s in the case of broke, but like they don't always the final product, when the final product strays so far from your original vision or what you had in your head going in, that, those are the disappointments. And so I, I, I think that's, that's only why I sort of... Uh,
0: Before uh, you go too far down that yeah. path, I would simply say to you, you choose good subject matter. And it's right on the line of being a little bit pornography. And mm. with some subtleties, it could be the great work that you've done. And if it falls a little to the other side of that, it can feel like you've somehow contaminated the art in a grab for money when that's not what you intended. You chose good subjects. In all of the instances and in all of the movies you've made,
1: I feel like you've chosen mm. good subject matter. I often quote you when you refer to the the genre that we sort of Semi invented with the U because it became a sub genre of 30 for 30. You called it sports porn. And that's, you know, that's, I think that's accurate. I say the job of a filmmaker, and this is true of probably any journalist or any storyteller, this is true of your job, too. The goal is to find a good story and then don't fuck it up you know, the PG version being find a good story and then tell it well, right? We do nonfiction stories. So we have to find a real story and real characters and real people who have a compelling story to tell. And then we have to come in and, and in our style and our filmmaking and our aesthetic, we have to support that story. So yeah, you know, part of the obligation of making a documentary is that you need facts, you need journalism, but you're also creating a piece of, of Pop culture you're creating a piece of popular entertainment hopefully that people and especially this project cooking cowboys kings of the kings of Miami it's six parts and if an audience if I'm going to ask an audience for that kind of time out of their lives it's got to the story has to sustain it and it has to be let's say it it has to be entertaining they ha- you know they have to feel compelled to watch and continue to watch that is our obligation and and so we you know you, the term the term porn i guess comes into play when uh, when you when you, when you uh, address that but uh, <laughs> i'm here to promote a thing and i'm just going to going to lay down on the couch dan if you don't mind in
0: miami the subject matter you're choosing drug use and and just it's ridiculous billy i don't even know tell the people what this story is because it's not even
1: it, the only link to your other cocaine related stories is the cocaine and the t- yeah, the title, of course. But yeah, this is an entirely new thing. You don't have to see, you don't have to have seen any of the previous three uh, Cocaine Cowboys, Cocaine Cowboys 2 Hustling with the Godmother, or Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded, which was a wholesale re edit of the first movie from scratch with, I think, 60% new material that ran over two and a half hours. Our other alternate title for Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded was Cocaine Cowboys, colon, we have hours of this shit. Um, <laughs> and so. Um, which we did. I mean, we just had, you know, endless content of, to your point, of, about this era in, in Miami. And people couldn't get enough of it. Here's the thing. So you live in Miami, like I do, and you make cocaine cowboys and people know you for that, or know me for that. Um, and they will stop you in the street or at dinner and go, yo, bro, are you Billy Corbin? And I'll go, are you a process server? And they'll say no. And I'll go, then, yes. Now, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm Billy Corbin. And they'll be like, bro, like, bro, I love cocaine cowboys, bro. But, like, you didn't get the whole story, bro, because you didn't interview my cousin, bro. My cousin knows all that shit, bro. Like, right? Like, you can't, you can't do a co- another cocaine cowboys until, like, you interview my uncle, bro. Like, holy shit, bro. I speak fluent Wes Kendall, by the way. I don't know if you know this. But, like, um, so you had, like. There is an obligation in a way to sort of serve your audience and and Miami is in part Miami is the muse and Miami is the constituency. Right. So, you know, the only reason we get to I say the measure of a successful filmmaker is not money or awards or critical acclaim. It's that you get to work again. And if you continue to get to make more documentaries you are a successful filmmaker and the only reason I get to do that is is because of Miami is because again it's Miami in and it's Miami out right it's like it's projects that are inspired by Miami but then uh, embraced by the audience in, in Miami and so you have to serve you know your, your audience I, I, I this was a labor of love this project it took us 12 years to make this project but we don't make them for ourselves we make them ultimately for an audience so this despite being the fourth title in the franchise this is the first story we wanted to tell. This is the story that in the early zeros, the early 2000s, we set out to, to make a documentary called Cocaine Cowboys about Willie Falcone and Sal Magluda, who were Cuban exiles who dropped out of Miami High, appropriately, Miami High School, and uh, became what the government alleged were the biggest cocaine traffickers in the history of the United States. They wound up in an in indictment, which was the biggest drug trafficking case uh, in the history of the federal government. Uh, 75 tons, over 2.1 billion, with a B, dollars of cocaine. And they were known, Willie Falcone and Sal Magluta, as Willie and Sal, los muchachos, the boys. And if you lived in Miami, that's how you knew them. The, news, the headlines read Willie and Sal. Nobody went Willie who? Sal who? The Chirons in the, in the upper left or right-hand corner of the local news said Willie and Sal, not even Falcone and Magluta. And people knew, someone in the documentary says, you know, there's, there there may be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in Miami, there's only one or two degrees of Willie and Sal. You either knew them or knew someone who knew them. Their tentacles and their their money reached into sort of every facet of this community. And the trials that they went through, I mean, the I feel like the in that era, the average kind of career length of a cocaine trafficker in the United States, maybe five years. If you're like, Truly legendary and paying off the right people. Uh, Willie and Sal, for example, spent a million dollars a month in payoffs. That was their monthly budget for for political and law enforcement and criminal justice payoffs. Uh, They they operated for 20 years.
0: The other cocaine cowboy stories were derivative of this one, right? All the other stories that you happened upon that you told in the time since you were trying to tell this original story. These guys are the godfathers of Miami, of the drug trade, exploiting market inefficiencies during that time. They helped build Miami in some
1: ways, did they not? I mean, they operated a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation. The primary product of which was illicit was cocaine. But they had Construction companies. They had an offshore powerboat racing team. They were world champions. I think three or four times over between the two of the two teams. They had a boat uh, manufacturing and boat uh, engine business. They had a softball team, <laughs> the Seahawks softball team, named for their uh, for their uh, offshore powerboat racing team. Where they had a guy named Sergio Crego who was a ringer who they brought in from Canada and paid. 30, 40, 50 grand per softball game. These are like local corporate softball leagues, but they had a guy that threw, I'm sorry, that pitched 90 miles per hour underhanded in a softball league. So they could win. And then brawl. They brawl on the field. We have a deleted scene coming out on, on Netflix's YouTube page with this softball team that could beat the Marlins any day of the week. I just realized as I was saying that, that's not saying very much. Nonetheless, uh, it's true and uh, this guy also incidentally lived in a stash house where Willie and Sal kept kept cocaine when he came into town to play in these in these softball games um, and they were known as kind of Robin Hood's because they would you, you'd go to Sal a la Don Corleone and you'd say I need my mortgage payment I need rent and we're gonna lose our house my child is going to school and we need tuition money and Sal would just give people money Um and uh, at the time. When they were operating in the 80s. They were not known as a violent organization. They worked with both extraordinarily. With both the Medellin and Cali cartels. They had a constant stream. of And supply of cocaine. Uh, that they could bring into this country. Um, through uh, first through uh, Bimini. And later through the West Coast. Uh, Tractor trailers over the Mexican border. Uh, but they. Um, they were able to operate. I think someone says they walked between the raindrops. Which is really what the story is about. It's about the. The trials and the, and the cat and mouse game that Willie and Sal played. But these guys, um, I, I don't know that you'll find anyone who's been in this country, particularly in the Cuban exile community, for, uh, you know, for, for any period of time who don't know who Willie and Sal are. How crazy is this story? The story is crazy. And the story is crazy also because most cocaine trafficking stories end when they get arrested. This story just begins when they get they get arrested like six, seven, eight, nine times in over the course of the six episodes. Like they just keep getting arrested over and over and over again. It's just this revolving door where nothing seems to stick. Like I said, they're just walking between the raindrops and you have the entire uh, the entire strength and power of the federal government. The DEA, the FBI, the IRS, the U.S. Attorneys, or the you know the Department of Justice on these guys, and they spent on their first trial in 1995 into '96, they spent 25 million dollars on their defense. That is between attorneys, private investigators. Uh, 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 they had mock juries. They did like you know kind of they tested their case against. I mean, they just had an endless supply of money to to go head to head really uh, in a way they could match and really outmatch the resources of the federal government. People talk about the dream team and OJ. OJ did not spend a fraction of the money on his defense that these guys, that these guys spent. What are the craziest parts of the story? Oh, some of them are spoilers. Cause that's the thing. There's so many twists and turns uh, in this story. I think the Miami Easter eggs in this are like ridiculous. They're ridiculous. Some of them, we put a fine and, in- finer point on that's just like okay you can't miss the Bee Gees you can't miss the Miami Sound Machine you know, there, you, you know there's certain things that are very obvious and then there's just things that kind of like blow by in passing like a passing reference to Willie Chirino to Latin American restaurant and, and you know on Red Road to like little like just the map of Dade County just kind of illuminates in a really fun way that nobody else in the world will necessarily appreciate but like it's just like a treasure trove for, uh, for Miamians and I think what's interesting about it and and shocking about it, without trying to give away spoilers, is two things. First, the level of, I should say, multi-levels of the corruption. Um, the entirety of the criminal justice system. One federal judge referred to Miami in the 80s as being on the ragged edge of anarchy. And so we had seen the biggest police corruption scandals in history. Some of the biggest political corruption scandals in history. Um, we saw judges corrupted. Uh, law enforcement corrupted, attorneys corrupted, all as a result of drug money, just the extraordinary influence of just, a, just this influx of drug money. I mean, I think Time magazine and the Paradise Lost Cover, you know they said that the biggest industries, legit industries in Miami in, 19, in the early 1980s were um, tourism, which was worth like nine billion or seven billion, and then um, uh, real estate, which was worth as much as 12 billion. Drugs were estimated at between, they didn't know for sure, there's nobody, between seven and 12 billion. So it would have made it potentially the biggest, the single biggest industry in Miami at the time. And you had anywhere from 70 to 90% of the cocaine and marijuana coming into the United States coming in uh, through Miami. So in the series, they corrupt an element of the criminal justice system that no one really predicted before and at a level that was unprecedented because Willie and Sal's tentacles reached out into this community In a way that very few people can do in a in a town of this size and could corrupt a federal trial at a level that that no one could have ever uh, conceived of
0: the reporting that you have to do on this, the interviews that you have to get when you're talking to this many people about an insane time. uh, Was there a delight? Was there a danger? Were you getting too close to some things that people didn't want to talk about? Because this did escalate into becoming a very violent mafia industry,
1: they were accused of participating in these murders to protect themselves. Once they their backs were against the wall and they were indicted, and they were looking at people in the organization, even family, uh, flipping uh, on them. Uh, so, yeah, the story did get j- dangerous. There is the the fact is that. You know, a lot of this is people talking about the the bad old good old days or the good old bad old days uh, in Miami. So a lot of this is stuff that happened some decades ago. The thing that's that's more compelling and potentially more dangerous about it uh, that we address uh, over the course of the series is that Willie and Sal had a lot of compromise on a lot of people in this community. Uh, And they had there was a dossier, let's say, uh, that contains lists of names by chapter and subject matter. They include people in the private sector, people in the public sector, people in law enforcement uh, who were knowingly participating or prof- and or profiting from this massive cocaine trafficking conspiracy, Who, many of whom have never been identified today, many of whom may still be. Substantial members of the Miami community. They might even be still elected officials. They might even still be in law enforcement. Many of them have probably since retired or died. Or uh, maybe they were even busted for other other unrelated uh, crimes. Um, But those people are still out there. Uh, And while Willie and Sal and many of their associates have paid uh, a price. As everyone does in these rise and fall stories. you, You always wind up dead or in prison. But there's a lot of people who didn't. End up in either of, of those places. Uh, they profited greatly from the largesse of the cocaine traffickers. I, I think that Miami is uh, in the nineteen eighties during the cocaine boom is the only real world successful real world case study of Ronald Reagan's trickle down economics, where it act that actually functioned. That actually were you could say that money came from the top, it stayed here in Miami, and found its way into. Nearly every single legitimate industry, and ultimately into the very foundation of an infrastructure of this community.
0: What are the great details of the excess that they were oh. living?
1: Yeah, that that's one of the the fun things about doing a rise and fall story is you get to do the rise. You know, the fall is ugly. The thing about the movie is that if you're not going to binge all six episodes, what I'd recommend is it's really a trilogy of of in two. So watch one and two. Then watch three and four, then watch five and six. It's really a, a trilogy of feature docs in that in that way, structurally and tonally. Um, you have the beginning, the middle, and the end. you know you have your exposition, your conflict and your and your resolution, um, the rise and the the fall. and so um, getting to do the rise is obviously the fun part. The music is more <laughs> is more fun the and that's the thing too. The soundtrack is probably one of the greatest soundtracks we've ever done for a documentary in twenty years. Um, you get to have the fun, you get to depict that lifestyle. Um, I mean, you have the every single offshore powerboat race that they participated in cost at least a million dollars that was just on boats and and personnel that didn't even include they flew in the entire extended family. They put them up. They they live large. They bought meals. Um, Then you have the mutiny, the scene at the mutiny back in the day, which we kind of touched upon in the first cocaine cowboys, uh, which was this ridiculously lavish hotel um, in Coconut Grove. Uh, overlooking dinner key marina and the the mooring sailboats uh, in in the in the inlet there and they had a nightclub on the second floor of this hotel that was absolutely someone refers to it as the Wall Street of the cocaine business uh, in Miami and um, these lavish themed rooms with just utter debauchery uh, at all hours of the of the day and night and and Willie and Sal were card carrying members uh, of the mutiny um, you have vacation homes and mansions. You have condos everywhere. They had a condo in um uh in Brickle Key that they referred to as Scarface. That was kind of like the after party. They'd go to Club New, they'd go to the Mutiny, they'd go to Honey for the Bears or Suzanne's, uh, and then they'd hit Scarface, which was the the after party condo uh in, in Brickle Key. Uh, So there was a lot of, they had a lot of fun at their peak. And you also have to remember when they get busted in 91, they're like 34, 35 years old. They're on their mid 30s. So they lived a lot of life, you know, (laughs) been in in their 20s and 30s. I mean, I think any of us would look back on our, our 20s and say, man, I did some crazy shit. These guys, these guys did some crazy shit in their 20s and early 30s.
2: My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit millerlite.com/beach. B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.
1: How did they build it? salmaluuda was came to the United States during Pedro Pan during the freedom flights that a Catholic uh, church had helped facilitate for parents who wanted their children to 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 flee Cuba uh, after the revolution um, but couldn't necessarily leave themselves at that time. so you had this kind of in a way they're called freedom flights. it was beautiful, but this also very tragic scenario in which parents were putting their Children. Sal was five or six years old, alone on a plane with a bunch of other children to come to this strange country. And if they were lucky, live with some distant relatives or, or extended family. Most of the kids were orphans, essentially, when they arrived here. And uh, but Sal was lucky enough to have you know cousins and aunts and uncles to live in like a one or two bedroom, you know, dilapidated flat with one bathroom. That they, this entire extended, I should say, multiple you know families. Uh, shared, um, and was without his parents for about four or five years. Um, and I think that was, I, I'm not making excuses, I'm explaining, you know, that immigrant experience in Miami at the time. Um, and also, and the parents of that generation. I think in a way, a lot, there was a generation of Miamians, by the way, Anglo and Cuban exile alike, who were almost kind of guilty by geography. You know, time and place, there was an opportunity, there was opportunities here for young people, who thought they understood what the American dream was, right? This mythological thing where the streets are paved with gold, you become a millionaire overnight. Um, And I think they thought that that's what this was. It was this kind of warped American dream story that they see their friends in Little Havana, in Hialeah, in Miami, becoming millionaires overnight. Their parents, meanwhile, came over losing everything, losing their country, losing their, um, their, their money, losing their businesses, losing their property. They come to Miami with nothing. Sal's parents opened a bakery uh, next to a Publix in a strip mall in Southwest Miami-Dade. It was a it was a kosher Cuban bakery because they catered to a lot of synagogues back when there was a, a larger Jewish population uh, in Miami. Uh, and they worked in that bakery for like forty years. The government never took their house because they bought their house with their money. They worked with their hands before dawn every single day. Sal's generation <laughs> maybe had a you know these these first generation. Uh, uh, immigrants, uh, exiles, had a different, maybe, again, time and place. They're looking around, and their peers are, at first, selling nickel and dime bags, right? They're they're selling weed in high school. Not an uncommon thing. Then the business starts to move because there's more money. I mean, cocaine was worth more than gold. I mean, a, a kilo of cocaine wholesale was like $40,000, $50,000 in Miami back at that time, wholesale. And so uh, they wanted to grow their business but they didn't have enough cash is the bottom line they were kids selling buying buying grams you know divvying them up and and kind of selling them in, in tiny little little quantities and then they had a friend george valdez who whose parents were best friends with sal's parents from cuba um, which is how a lot of, you know, re- relationships, which is how community here started. It's the reason why that the Colombians, when they first came over, which we see in the first Cocaine Cowboys, could not adapt to this environment as quickly. They relied on the Cuban-Americans who had a, a city within a city, who had a community here and people they could trust and rely on. And you say, stay in this house and don't look in the closet. And you could find people who would trust you, who you could trust to, to do that. Marco Rubio lived in a cocaine stash house for an entire summer it was his brother-in-law's cocaine stash house in Kendall back when he was like 12 13 14 years old i'm not that's not an indictment of marco rubio that's more like a miami rite of passage that's like a bar mitzvah you know uh, in in miami you're spending the summer in your brother-in-law's cocaine <laughs> stash house in Kendall you know um so it was just kind of a way of life for in a time and place um in miami and so and it's a unique family story in that way whereas the first cocaine cowboys feels a little bit wild wild west This feels like Miami. It feels like Little Havana. It feels like... And everybody I met in this this project were just like normal families. They were just like normal Miami people, some of whom found themselves, obviously, way in over their head. But they were just like kind of cool people. I mean, Sal... So when we first uh, started this project, we've been working on this for 12 years. Okay? Doce años. And super long. And we started it um, when... Um, Marilyn Bonaccia, Sal's childhood sweetheart, later her mistress, his mistress and bookkeeper, his girlfriend, uh, like lifelong girlfriend since she worked in his parents' bakery, actually. Um, uh, she came out of witness protection and reached out to us shortly thereafter. And we got that interview in the can, which I think is the, that's the, to me, the most important interview and the most compelling interview. Why did she reach out to you? I don't know. I think because she had seen cooking Cowboys and she knew we were doing these types of stories. I think she had, you know, she had lost track of her family at that point in witness protection. She didn't she knew where her son was, but she didn't know where her parents were. She didn't know if they were alive or dead. Like, I think so. I think she was looking for a way to kind of get out there and tell her story and maybe help help her to find her family. But also she had been alone, you know, in witness protection, kind of just stewing in her thoughts. And and she came out with with little more than her story, which was a very is a very a compelling one and worth telling. She was, she was right. Um, Alfred Spellman, my producing partner, often jokes that uh, when people get out of prison in Florida, their first call is to their mother and their second call is to us to, to make a documentary. Um, that wasn't quite the case here, but she was just putting out feelers, I think. And I, I also, Alfred and I had done an interview with Ocean Drive Magazine, where we identified the Willie and Sal story as being a bucket list project for us. And it turns out that Sal Magluda is subscribed to Ocean Drive magazine in federal prison. And he read this article and through friends and family reached out to me and gave me access to his personal archive. Invited me to his parents' house. His mother made me cafecito, fed me pastaditos. And we talked and we went through their photo albums from Cuba. Uh, Why? Why did he do this? I think he wanted somebody to tell the story. And, and And I think because of our enthusiasm and our passion for it, this is a passion project. Uh, that he trusted us to do it. And I wind, wound up years later in his personal private storage unit with 20 plus years of materials, uh, videos, documents, uh, so, some, you know, court, you know, some, some probably attorney client privileged uh, documents, audio tapes, trial exhibits, photos. And and that's really that's how this You must have found that
0: fascinating. Like if you fell upon a treasure chest, no.
1: You know some projects begin that way. You mean like, like, oh, we found something. Now we have the means and the tools to tell this story. Um, This happened when we were in the middle of it, really closer to the end, where I'm trying to figure out. Like, I have all these interviews, make a hell of a podcast, but you know, but what are where you know how are we going to do this visually? What is what are what is the audience going to be seeing that corroborates the crazy shit that these folks are talking about and we had a little bit of it but not nearly enough of it so for me it was like a it was like a relief you know it was like we had invested so much into some archaeological dig and had turned up very little for you know for years and years and suddenly it was like oh uh, the mother load we now you know and, and sal gave us that key no pun intended to the castle uh, there I don't know if you finished the Sal portion of the story, but
0: my question was,
1: how did this happen? And you haven't gotten to the Willie part. Yeah, well, they met each other, you know, Um, at, I think in Miami, probably before Miami High. They were kind of childhood friends. I don't believe they knew each other or their families knew each other from Cuba. I think they, they connected uh, in Miami. Started selling marijuana. And then uh, shifted into tiny. I don't even mean street dealer. I mean like high school dealer, like low, low quantities, low level quantities of, of of cocaine. But they started to kind of mingle in communities where people were interested in the product. And in Miami was a sleepy town. There wasn't a lot of nightclubs just yet. There wasn't a there wasn't nightlife in general. It was you know Ocean Drive here was still God's waiting room. It was a, it was a lot of. They're old... responsible for nightlife in Miami. No, they are responsible. Someone gives them credit for discovering slash inventing the local like wholesale and retail cocaine trade. Uh, this was always a transshipment point, but it would go to New York. It would go to L.A. It would go to sh- it would go to big cities with nightlife, with money, you know, with industry. Miami was a pretty depressed town in the 1970s. Um, and there, there there wasn't indigenous industry. There wasn't a lot of money. Um, tourism had dried up uh, thanks to the advent of jet travel, which enabled people to take more exotic beach locations out of the country and go to the Bahamas and elsewhere. And thanks to Uncle Walt opening Disney World in the middle of the state in the 1970s, which basically was a dragnet. The Griswolds or anybody you know, in their uh, station wagon heading south to Miami Beach like they used to do every summer were suddenly getting netted in in Orlando and spending all their money there and never making it down here. So, so Miami was depressed at that, at that time. Uh, and Willie and Sal started to find people Young people and people with money, professionals, because it was a weekend warrior kind of a drug. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't this thing where you sit like heroin. It wasn't this sort of like antisocial thing. You sit in a corner on a stoop and you just, you know, you, you 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 shoot up. It was a party drug. So doctors and lawyers and professionals and people with money would go to their their jobs during the week. And then on the weekend they would party and they would do cocaine. So they helped to sort of invent and discover that market. And this there was a guy that they knew, George Valdez. I was saying they. Sal watched George Valdez, who was an educated guy, went to the University of Miami, uh, was working as an accountant, got a job at the Federal Reserve Bank here in Miami, and he met some interesting characters from Colombia. And the next thing you know, Sal notices he starts a banana company, and he's importing bananas on you know, giant shipping, you know, uh, containers uh, from Colombia to Miami, and then he notices that George is making. About a million dollars a month. And I think the line is like, he's not, he's, that's not from bananas. These are, you know, those aren't bananas that he's bringing in. And so Sal asks for a meeting and Sal says, listen, I know what you're doing. Can you, you know, front me a kilo? And he's like, how much cash do you have? And he's like, I got like eight grand. And he just laughs. He's like, you know, he's like, I love Sal. He goes, but I don't want to embarrass him. He goes, but, you know, wholesale is going for $40,000, $45,000. He goes, I he just, he's like, listen, I'm, I'm all, Committed, my, my pieces, my product is all committed, you know, come back, you know, some other time. So uh, George is about to leave the country and he's got 40 kilos that was supposed to go to a wholesaler, to a supplier that, that it felt the deal fell through. The guy wasn't coming to get these 40 kilos. So he goes, oh, I'm leaving the country. I'm not going to leave these 40 kilos sitting around. He calls up Sally he says, listen, this is your, your moment. I got 40 kilos. I'm not giving you one, I'm not giving you 10, I'm not giving you 20. You take all 40 on consignment and you, you know, come back to me in, in a month or two, you know, whatever you need and you see what you can do. Within weeks, they came back with all the cash, Willie and Sal. And Sal was not confident in it. Willie was. Sal was the, the CEO. You know, he was the, the guy keeping the books and he did. He kept extensive and detailed ledgers of every single transaction, legit and and illegitimate, and uh, he knew where every kilo was, where every dollar was. Willie was the front man. He was the like you know the face of the operation. But what the guy kind of had.
0: risk are they running right there when you take forty kilos of cocaine on consignment? You're risking that's a life and death transaction, is it not? Yeah, but they
1: again these are these are family friends from from Cuba. So you know, cocaine was a consignment business because it was so expensive. Weed you'd pay cash for um but it was bulky and it was like low margin and and everybody had it and so cocaine was a rare commodity and and for the scarcity and the purity you could get top dollar wholesale and retail uh for it and this was a product that if you were buying it in Colombia you were buying it maybe for $5,000 a kilo once you got it to the United States that was the major risk obviously was the transshipment and and getting it here then you're getting like i said wholesale 40 those margins are are outrageous you so know billy are you giving these two guys
0: credit for sort of uh starting cocaine trafficking in a big way in this city building this city building the nightlife in this city are you fertilizing seeds here saying that these two guys are basically responsible for what it is
1: miami became In no small part and people like them i think that was the thesis of the original cocaine cowboys you know we wanted to to say that the narco dollars generated in this community in that era uh, built the the city that we know and love and other people love to hate uh, today. And, and I, I think that and we did that because we couldn't tell the Willie and Sal story at that time. Uh, we did that with what I call a mosaic. We got different people. We got a different cocaine smuggler and different wholesaler. Um, a hitman for Griselda Blanco, La Madrina, the godmother, uh, Jorge Riviala. We got uh, lawyers, we got uh, people, you know, journalists, we got um, uh, law enforcement, a cross-section of people in Miami. Each one a different tile, right, in, in this mosaic that when you backed up and zoomed out at the end was the skyline, was the city of, of Miami. And so we originally wanted to, with that same thesis use William sal sal's story as the vessel through which to tell that because to us that is the ultimate story this was what we always wanted to do and and so the short answer to your question is too late obviously but uh, but is yes that 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 to some extent i don't know if you want to call it credit but to some extent and you could call it blame even uh they help build um the i mean these were guys who were they were billionaires with a B. There's no, there's no doubt about it, and uh, and they were extremely generous, and so a lot of that money wound up in the community, uh, it wound up in legitimate businesses, and it very much helped to to build Miami. And they got away with it again and again because everything was corrupt. Because everything was corrupt, and they were so well liked, they were so respected. Before they were feared, they were they were beloved. They were folk heroes. They, they someone refers to them as Robin Hoods, and so. That was really, it was, I think they, they, you know, they tempted the bees with honey and with cash. You Crim- know, so. Well,
0: criminal heroes
1: the same way Pablo, Pablo Escobar was in Colombia, correct? Very much the model. Very much the model. And, and I think that Miami being America's Casablanca is susceptible to that kind, of, <laughs> that kind of influence. We have no indigenous industry. We have a transient population and lack of institutional memory. And so you, you have opportunities here where we subsist from hustle to hustle. You know, Tech Hub is just the new cocaine. That's all it is. It's, the, we, we, it's all ultimately just a real estate hustle. We, we don't have any other business other than to attract tomorrow's tourists, right, or tomorrow's new real estate uh, buyers. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Were they, Ray Liotta, in a panicked frenzy in Goodfellas, (laughs) just sort of
1: hiding from helicopters all the time? Like, how intense did the scrutiny become? No, one of the cops... Um, Towards the end of episode one, it's hard to do this without spoilers, but one of the cops who was pursuing them uh, early on said um, he gets Sal, finds him. Sal's got IDs and credit cards and some other name. No, I'm not Sal Magluta. Look, I'm this guy. You know, Um, he had like drawers full of of IDs and credit cards and passports, in fact, in different names. And so he gets him in the car after Sal. And I'm not this guy. And you made a mistake. You made a mistake. Finally, you're driving to bring him to jail and he says, okay, you got me, (laughs) it's me. I could take you right now to a stash house with a thousand kilos of cocaine in it and you can have it if you let me go. And he doesn't care if they bust it like, meaning like they make a big drug bust or they just keep it themselves. You know what a thousand kilos of cocaine is worth to a cop in Miami in the late 1980s? So the cops describes him as saying, he had absolutely no fear whatsoever of losing his freedom or his liberty and he said i didn't really it didn't compute with me in that moment what that meant that fearlessness and and how how kind of how dangerous that made him just in terms of it didn't matter if he was going to jail that day he wasn't going to be there for long and he was right he was absolutely right about that and so i don't think that they lived like like Ray Liotta. They were not looking over their shoulder. They were moving full steam ahead. How did they become that fearless? They just knew they were that insulated by that they were running Miami. It's like the broke story. It's like the athlete stories. You're you're a billionaire in your 20s. You're fucking invincible. Nobody can tell you anything. Nobody can you know nobody can convince you of anything. Nobody can say like, "You know, you're going to have a career-ending injury tomorrow and all of this is gone." They nobody they don't want to hear it. They don't believe it. So I think it's the same thing. These guys are the Kings of Miami and, and no one could tell them any, you know, tomorrow you could just law enforcement just knock on the door and that'll be the end of all of this. And they just, and they were, you know, I don't want to say they were adrenaline junkies, but they were offshore powerboat racers. Like that's a very dangerous sport, you know, and they were champions uh, in it. And so, um, we have some, in episode one, particularly, like I said, the rise is always more fun to make than, than the fall is, but they, we have some footage of their, um, you know their races and interviews with them. You get to hear from them in interview. You know these archive interviews from from the boat races, and um, you, we kind of I don't want to say use it out of context, but like they're talking about the offshore para boat racing business and how dangerous and fun and the speed, and sometimes you hit some bumpy waters. But so so all of that that metaphor kind of like carries over, and we intercut it with the drug running side of their you know, smuggling side of their lives. But I think it's in, in addition to being kind of fun, it also offers you some insight into their mentality. And, 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 you know, Jim DeFiti in his cover stories for the Miami new times. I mean, he's the only one who covered this in any extensive feature story kind of way attended the, the entirety of the first trial, et cetera, you know, uh, Jim's, You know, their title was The Adventures of Willie and Sal and like the continuing adventures of Willie and Sal. Because that's really what they may have been misadventures. But that was very much the the attitude is that these were some some somehow pirates and adventures. How cutthroat and violent did they become? Depends on who you ask, because, you know, the way it shakes out in the court system. Again, I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, a jury would have you believe not at all what was alleged was some pretty extraordinary shit. Um, not the least of which, oh my man, all these spoilers, but at the end, you discover that when they get arrested and they start to uh, compile a potential witness list, who might be, where are the weak links in the organization, right? Who might flip on them and testify against them, jump on the bus, as they say. Um, they started to make a list. So they took this internal defense list, right? And they decided that they were going to take out an ad in Prison Life magazine, with this potential witness list, and say, hey, listen, we're doing research on these, you know, we want to know about their criminal history, their background, their personal lives, whatever info you have on these, on these men and women, let us know, because they might be witnesses in our case. You're, you're, you're looking at it the way the prosecution thought of it. The criminal defense attorneys, which we, who we interview, they're like, well, that is our we have a constitutional obligation and legal obligation to rigorously defend uh, our our uh, clients. And and, you know, these are the people testifying against them are criminals themselves. And we need to learn about their history. In actuality, the, the defense of William Sal knew more about the 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 government's witnesses than the government did. OK, uh, you learn that, too, in the doc. But they created what the government referred to as a hit list. Because many of the people on that list were themselves incarcerated. Some in protective custody, some not. Believe you me, they were in protective custody very shortly after that, uh, that ad came out. Um, but no one had ever seen anything like that before. Uh, that was some straight up gangster shit. And um, we, we, we talk about that. And then in point of fact, witnesses, potential witnesses and co-conspirators began dying. And not of natural causes.
0: How reckless were they? What are some examples you can give me of them just being out of control, reckless, beyond the pale on adrenaline junkies and
1: powerboat champions? hate to bring it back to the powerboat racing thing, but that was on national television. That was a televised sporting event. It's hard to think of now, but that was big. You look at Miami Vice. That was a legit big sport. Now, mind you, more than 50%, I believe, of the champions, the world champions in that sport, were drug smugglers, were, were either convicted drug smugglers or later would be convicted drug smugglers. Uh, but uh, I'll give you this: So they, um, the government comes into Miami. It's out of control. The drug smuggling is out of control. The violence starts to spill over into the streets, and vice president at the time, George H.W. Bush, comes to town, and is going to crack down the vice presidential uh, task force on drugs in South Florida.
0: Massacres in the street. Like, you're talking about just gunfire spraying and people being dead in a parking lot because a
1: some sort of drug war has broken out regionally. Miami was the murder capital of the United States of America in the early 1980s, and got worse every single year. 78, 79, 80, 81. I think it peaked in 82. Uh, and so people in this community had had enough uh, truth be told if the violence had not spilled over in, in such a public way and collateral damage hadn't started uh, it's possible the drug trade would have just been allowed to kind of continue unabated because everybody was addicted to the the money. It was the violence uh, endangering men and women and children at the Dayland shopping mall at high noon on a summer's day that was, that was suddenly problematic, and rightfully so. So they come into crackdown, and um, it's what the DEA calls the water balloon effect. You squeeze one side, and the other side blows up. So they squeeze Miami and the Caribbean um, as an interdiction point, um, at, uh, uh, a transshipment point, and then everybody goes west. They say, okay, now we need to deal... In the Mexican border. And uh, Willie and Sal, in fact, moved the operation. They, had, they, were left with, they were down to like 400 kilos in Miami. And they had no idea if there was going to be any more coming in you know, through the Caribbean. And so they had to make it last. They, they spent, this is another deleted scene. They, like, they, they spent like the, the weekend in a house... You know, with the ether just like stepping on this cocaine to, to make that 400 kilos into 800 or 1000 kilos, you know, where they would repackage it with God knows what baby powder and, and, and who knows. And the whole neighborhood was complaining because the ether, they could smell the ether and the cocaine all over this neighborhood in, in I think, in Westchester um, near FIU. And so um, they move out west. They lived in Marina del Rey outside of, you know, in Los Angeles County. And they were bringing up 18 wheelers filled with onions and thousands of kilos of cocaine that they would put behind, of course, the onions so that when the dog came in or they would search, they'd be like, oh, fuck, these are onions. Like, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and so bringing it up through the Mexican border. And so they were in Marina del Rey and they get busted. And some dumb shit. There's a couple of kilos or some cash. No big deal. But they get busted under one of their. Litany of pseudonyms and fake names and fake IDs um, like Sergio. Mendo. what was it? Sergio something Sal was. They get arrested. They bond out. And they go to Miami. Never AWOL, like never to be seen or heard, heard from again in L.A. County. They're just like, OK, like, that's it. They're looking for Sergio whoever. And I'm Sal Maglud in Miami. And so the L.A. County sheriff, sheriff's deputy is watching TV one day after they go fugitive, after they realize these guys aren't showing, <laughs> they're going to forfeit the bond. They don't give a shit. They're, gonna, they're not showing up for, for hearings or for trial. They're gone. They're in the wind. And he's watching like ESPN one day. And sure as shit, who's being interviewed? But Sal Magluta. The, who, and he goes, that's not Sal Magluta. That's Sergio, <laughs> what's his face? Who I arrested, who I busted, you know, uh, 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 last year. And there he is on national television knowing he's a fugitive in LA at that point he was also a fugitive in Miami giving an interview on national television on ESPN yeah why not about sports just about about offshore powerboat racing they were at a, they were on the on a dock at a marina interviewing him about an offshore powerboat uh, boat racing <laughs> and so so <laughs> that was pretty you asked for reckless or wild that's pretty fucking wild that's and that's only episode 1 so <laughs> there's five more episodes after How that. did it come out as a project?
0: How do you feel about it based on the original intent 12 years ago? Did you mm. end up making the, the movie that you always aspired to make? Oh. You probably guessed that at the time you were probably making a two-hour movie. Now you got to make a 10-hour a movie,
1: right? Well, that's a funny thing. This is a little inside baseball, but um, when we started to make it, we started accumulating... Interviews. We get access. We put this. Is, when I say it's a labor of love, I mean like we had paying gigs. And then whenever we could have some money, we would like film interviews with people. And what we started to accumulate was basically, you know, a, 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 an archive of interviews with people involved in this case. And so what we quickly realized was that we had too much material. <laughs> the story was too big to tell in a one off feature doc in two hours. Here's the thing there was no such thing as a documentary series just didn't exist you were either making a one-off two-hour feature doc or you were doing like a like American greed right you're doing like a hundred thousand episodes you know uh, of a show there was no like other than Ken Burns but he was his I mean he's his own genre he can you know he does what he does like no one can touch him so like no, no one we couldn't sell a 10 hour documentary or an 8 hour documentary and then there was a one two punch there was the jinx on HBO and then there was making a murderer on Netflix and suddenly we were, we had worked on this documentary so long the business model we needed to tell the story was invented and then we had we were like shit we can do a a six part uh documentary and you know and we did
0: last question you mentioned yeah. the music and you mentioned this being a great soundtrack can yeah. you Tell us of uh, how it is that you lured, is there a good story how you lured Armando into the tent?
1: Yeah, there is there is a good story. And um, so Pitt was one of the first, Pitbull was one of the first, like, we'll call them celebrity fans of the original Cocaine Cowboys back in 06, who got it on bootleg from like the Carol Mart, you know, the, the flea market in Miami Gardens and Carol City uh, and like started to talk it up. Like, tell people it went viral before viral was a thing. Like, people trading DVDRs of it around, you know, Pharrell, Janet Jackson, all on bootleg. It was nuts. And, um, uh, uh, Nori, DJ Khaled. And, but Pitbull was like literally one of the first guys. And he was always like, if I can ever do anything for you, please let me know. He showed up to the premiere, I think of both of them, uh, or the second one rather, Cocaine Cowboys 2 at the Colony Theater on Lincoln Road in Miami Beach. And, um, and at some point, We were looking to do kind of a what they did for the 25th anniversary of Scarface is Def Jam Records put out like a hip hop album of songs inspired by Scarface. So we had a thought that we would do something like that and maybe put them in one of the documentaries, maybe Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded, which was originally called Cocaine Cowboys Remix. So we started our our composers at the time started to send out some tracks to some artists and say, like, hey, if you want to rap to this, like, please, you know, do it. Only one person sent back a track. And that was Pit. That was Pitbull. And I heard it and I was like, holy shit. It's because it's like OG Pitbull, you know? It's like, it's pretty hardcore. And so like, and it's and really genius. He like raps about cocaine in the first person as if he is cocaine. And so uh, at, the mo- at that moment in time, we didn't really have a home for it. Because it was so like, it wasn't like something you'd throw on in the background of a scene. It was the star of the show. And so I'm like, where do you, you, we don't don't really have that kind of real estate in the docks. They're so, you know, they're so talky and so propulsive. Like, where would we like stop and do like this great song? And like, it just never happened. And then we start working on uh, The Kings of Miami. And it's like, and again, it's like a Miami Cuban, you know, crime family saga. And I'm like, oh, I know what the theme song is. It's that Pitbull song. And and I don't even think Alfred remembered it. I played it for him. He goes, holy shit. Well, that's the theme song. Because also, you see these true crime documentary series, and a lot of the theme songs are just kind of like I just love that ponderous. Pitbull's doing it. Is it something
0: yeah. that you own? The reason that I asked the question- no. Uh, it's. I want to play it for the audience. Oh. I just want to be able to end the
1: episode. Text him. Ask him. If you- I, I want to just play at the end of this episode. The, him, the pitbull song. <laughs> I, I will. I will say. Um, I feel like every so we would be sitting in the editing room, you know, for years, and I'm just like, every time so there was a couple of pictures that would come up, and I'd be like, I'd be like, why, why is Dan Lebatard in this documentary? I'd be like, why is. Why is Dan Levitard in this? A like in young his Dan Levitard, You are showing me in a, his a
0: young Dan Levitard with that a is, mustache. Way that too way a, way more mustache yeah. than yeah, I had at fifteen. And, and
1: here you here you are at here you are at a Keensei here. That's you in your in the whites, in the classic white suit, you know. And I was like I was like, wow, I was like I was like Sal kind of looks like If my life
0: looks- had gone a different way, if Bobby was somebody who somehow had a lot of drug running <laughs> friends, I might have done it totally differently. <laughs> you, you are the new kings of Miami. Billy, thank you. I'm excited to watch this. Thank you for spending this time with us. People should watch what it is that he's doing because it's rich, it's vibrant, and it is distinctly Miami.
1: Thank you, Dan. My team
2: is one win away, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge, and I'm going to get myself an ice-cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brew & Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories for 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs and premium regular beer.